Though he aspired to be a writer in his youth, it wasn't until he was in his 30s and he was fired from a job that led Gary Phillips to finally sit down at the typewriter and write a novel. Though that first book was never published, it did lead him to a successful series of crime novels, including Perdition USA and Only the Wicked, that tell the story of private detective Ivan Monk and his adventures in modern-day Los Angeles. He's authored other books, including graphic novels, as well as being an editor on several anthologies, including The Cocaine Chronicles. He's a talented writer and has a voice that I envy. You're originally from L.A. Yes, right. So, but you were just saying that you, your dad was from Texas. That's correct. My dad was from a little town in Texas called Seguin, which is uh, about 33 miles east of San Antonio. And my mom was originally from a small town called Atoka. And Atoka was a black township founded after slavery in Oklahoma. But she more or less grew up in uh, Tulsa, though, in fact, she went to high school. She went to Fremont out here in L.A., uh, and my folks uh, met here in L.A., so I'm from Los Angeles. And as I mentioned, or I was, I was, I was thinking about, there's a character in the uh, Ivan Monk books uh, who's a police policeman, and his name is uh, Morosco Seguin, and he's named for my dad's hometown, which really is, in fact, named for an actual guy named Juan Seguin, who apparently was a, uh, uh, somehow he was a general who fought on both sides of the Mexican-American War, so okay. kind of trippy. So your your parents are part of that big migration that happened during the uh, definitely or towards the tail end of it actually. Oh no, well, yeah. Well, my dad was older, so yeah. So no, he was he was already out here. In uh, I mean, he was already grown. Yeah, because he got drafted. He was already like twenty six then when he got drafted, which is like at the point that was like the high point of you know the age range. And he was surprised he got drafted. So he was already yeah because he was already out here in uh, in the thirties. You know, when I was a kid growing up. I would hear stories about uh, Central Avenue and the clubs and, of course, the Dunbar Hotel. And in fact, the Dunbar Hotel had a bar in the basement called the Zanzibar Room. And my dad's uh, younger brother, he had two brothers, Norman and, and Sam, Sammy. And Uncle Sammy uh, was a bartender in the, in the Zanzibar Room. And in fact, at one point, all three of the brothers were out here in L.A. And I think they all got, I guess they all got drafted. Because uh, they all wound up in 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 the service in World War Two. Oh. coming up as a kid, did those stories sort of have an impact on you in terms of things you were hearing about, well, or was it just sort of? Yeah, you know, it's a funny. It's a it's a. I've thought about it a lot, and, and right. And does it? You know, did those stories make me a writer, or the fact that my mom was a librarian and forced me to read? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that has something to do with it too, because in fact, it gave me a love. It really did give me a love of, of reading. Uh, so, you know, even though I played sports in school and all that kind of stuff, uh, man, I I, uh, I guess I always knew, I, I think, somewhere around high school, I guess you start to think about these things a little bit more. And, uh, well, of course, what I really wanted to do was uh, write and draw my own comic books. Uh, as it turns out, unfortunately, uh, I have no particular abilities as a visual art, as a visual artist, uh, and so I just had to stick with the, the, with the writing part. Uh, but I, absolutely, Barnix, you know, those stories... That my dad and just his buddies would just sit around, you know, just talking about just the usual stuff that people talk about. Or now that I'm an old man, it's the stuff I talk about with my old friends, and I'm sure, you know, my son and daughter might hear it. Those obviously, like, just kind of just stuck in my mind because at that time, particularly at that time, you know, there was no particular literature. There was no, there was certainly nothing on TV. 
reflecting that reality. Yeah. And uh, and so I think uh, you know not. And as we know, I mean that that that's a whole other rich kind of uh, stuff that you know just invariably just stuck stuck with me, and I think, and and, and of course leaks out now in bits and pieces in, in my work. Yeah, I think it's interesting when when Los Angeles is used as sort of the palette mm. from which people create work. When you're first starting out, you're often looking at the stuff that's around you, and right. like you said. You know, during your time and definitely during my time, right. there really wasn't much. I mean, something took place in Los Angeles. It was mostly Hollywood or West yeah. of, of La Cienega. Exactly, exactly. And the world that I grew up in wasn't really represented in there. Right. And I, and I think part of me and I think a lot of other people, that they don't think that that world or that those experiences are are valuable in terms of storytelling just because they don't see it. Right. So... When do you sort of get a sense that your own experiences mm -hmm. are mm -hmm. valuable in terms of as terms of raw material to make something creative? Well, you know that's an interesting question, and of course, as we know, it's it's kind of come around again. What with this discussion about uh, Red Tails, like it or or, or not like it, uh, in terms of it, the quality of it as a as a movie, but the fact that it took George Lucas, a man who's actually who's made studios more than more than a pretty penny and, and even took him a long time to get this story told or, or this kind of story told. But I guess that's also the great, the great benefit about books, which is to say, and even now given understanding that the book business is changing though now with eBooks, it's that's still kind of interesting to see where that's going. But the fact uh, remained that when I was a kid coming up, I started, I stumbled on, of course, Chandler and Hammett, but then I also stumble on Iceberg Slim and, mm -hmm. and Donald Goins, right? Because these are guys, you know, that, that are only in paperback. They're sold uh, not too far from me at the at the at the thrifties uh, next to the to the Rouse Market there at, at Vernon and Figueroa. So uh, and you just you know you know you certainly didn't see those books in uh, at least in those days you didn't see those books in the bookstore you yeah. know the B Daltons or, or, or whatever was around then. And, but yet you know as we know they kind of reflected a kind of black experience or at least. Uh, a kind of hyper black experience, I mean, for the large part, mostly crime novels or certainly novels about crime, and uh, but nonetheless, were were very captivating, if only because you had black folks as main characters, which, as we know, was like a kind of revelation. It was a kind of very interesting time period. I mean, for me, it's like the late sixties, early seventies when I'm in high school, and so just to be able to sort of read those kinds of stories, as contrasted to you know what we, what you see on TV or what have you. Was was pretty interesting, and I suppose again it was like that. You now I can look back and think about it more, but of course I think it was more of a melding, which is to say, reading Chandler and Hammett, which I dug, but also reading this other material. I think then kind of validated. I guess that's the word to me. You know, to get back to your to your question, that my experiences that I could draw on my own experiences and they could have a life, if only as a paperback or if only as a paperback you could find at a thrifty drugstore, that was still better than nothing. Yeah. And and so it could, it could get out there and exactly so that I could mine the world that I knew and the world that I knew my friends knew and growing up knew and that that could have some that could that could have some purchase on, on the paper. Why the choice to write mystery and sort of suspense fiction, mm -hmm. genre mm -hmm. fiction in order to mine that, that life experience rather than something else. Rather than quote-unquote mainstream uh, uh, kind of novel. Yeah, because you, yeah, you say yeah, that, yeah. You, I've heard you say that you write stories about bad people doing bad things, <laughs> which I think is just a lovely turn of phrase. But, yeah. you know, what's the appeal uh, to you, and what do you think that that provides you that 
say that the more right standard friction doesn't doesn't provide doesn't you. provide you. Well, you know that that's uh, I've thought about that a lot. It's hard to pinpoint why it is. Now I you know there's a lot of reasons where you talk about well to me I think uh, uh, mystery novels have uh, more of a basis in a kind of plot and structure. Not to say that uh, not to say that obviously novels like uh, Native Son, although Native Son as we know has a lot of crime to it. And in certain ways could be certainly interpreted as a crime novel. I guess because I just, I don't know, maybe maybe it has something to do with, you know, a love of comics and, and the pulps. And some of that carries over into the crime novel in terms of the kinds of uh, reoccurring characters and the private eye and that kind of kind of stuff. That the, the, those tropes that find, theirself, that find their way into the mystery novel, the suspense novel. And I guess maybe that was a, a drawing, initial drawing for me in the sense of, uh, like I said, a kind of bridge material. Being somewhat facetious, I mean, obviously, I think there's a lot to be said for "quote unquote" mainstream kind of kind of novels or works that aren't in the in, in genre fiction per se. Although, as we know, there's a lot of uh, these writers who who also dabble in uh, in in genre fiction. There's just something to be said for, I think, and I think this is a great tradition that goes back to Hammett, where you can tackle uh, social issues, you can ta tackle issues around class and race in the crime format that can be both entertaining and compelling. And I think, frankly, I think because the crime novel or the mystery novel requires a certain kind of structure and a certain kind of pacing, to be honest with you, you know, there are some of these uh, quote unquote mainstream novels where I just think they kind of reiterate the same point over and over again, which is fine if you can, if you can do that and be, and be clever about it, but it's, I think it's hard to do. Whereas I think, I think it's also hard to write genre. But I also think because genre requires a beginning and a middle and an end, you can't help but go forward. Mm -hmm. You can't help but make the pace of the story different than you would make it if you were just, you know, the ruminations of a middle-aged man. Not that there's anything wrong with that, yeah. but th I think that therein lies the distinction. Well, I talk to a lot of people who are creative in, in various genres, yeah. and a lot of them don't come from families where there's a history of making a living being a creative person, okay, be a right, writer or right. a photographer or a painter. Yes. There are some occasions, but your family was primarily sort of working class. Yes. What allowed you to make the leap from having a desire to mm. write for a living and actually going, I'm going to take a stab at this and succeeding in making it happen? What was it that allowed you to be one mm. of the few people that goes out there and actually starts writing and, and eventually making a living well, as, as a writer. As I mentioned, you know, my, my mom was a librarian. My mom had uh, MS, and she uh, got sick early on. So really it was just me and my dad. And my dad had only made it to the sixth grade. My dad was a child of the Depression, grew up in this uh, piss-ant little town in, in, in Texas, and he, and he couldn't wait to get out of that town. <laughs> but, you know, Pop was of that generation, of the, those black folks, man, that, you know, education was it. Education was the key. And early on, you know, when uh, I'd bug them for my allowance to buy comic books, and, you know, in those days, comics were like, well, 12 cents, and they made the jump, of course, to 20 and then 25 cents. But, you know, Pop Pop was a man, you know, hard-earned money, man. And uh, so he wanted to make sure that his uh, his money wasn't going to waste. So he'd always ask me about the plots of the different comic mm -hmm. books and stuff. I guess all that is to say is that I think Pop always valued education, but he also valued he, the idea that you could write and tell these stories I think was always of a great interest to him of the books that he had, you know, he'd had various uh, black authors that, that he would read. I just think that because he valued it so much, it just sort of transferred to me. Not that he, he particularly pushed me to be a writer per se. 
In fact, the, the interesting thing is I always remember, I do remember this. When I was in high school and was playing, starting to play uh, ball, football, it, that actually worried him because he, he was he was afraid that I would get too much into sports and I, in fact, uh, sort of just drop the writing or drop the reading. Uh, so it was always kind of a kind of an interesting thing. It was kind of like kind of an opposite thing of how you would think a father would you know mm-hmm. encourage a son. So I guess I just I guess just because it was a it was a kind of environment where even though my dad was not particularly was not formally educated, uh, we always had books in the house and we always you know we always uh, we didn't sit down and discuss the news of the day or stuff like that. But just because I think the stuff was always there and he would always if I you know if I had a book and, and sometimes he would actually you know ask me about what a book or uh, what particular book I was reading or something like that. I don't know. I guess it was just kind of that kind of environment that because he didn't dissuade me of it. Whether Pop actually thought you could make a living at it, uh, that I don't, you know, I'm not, I'm not so sure it would go that far. But the fact that I think that it was always that, that kind of environment of just, if that's what you want to do, then you should, you know, you should do it. It's a good, it's a good positive thing. There's nothing, there's nothing wrong with that. And like I said, man, that, that stuff was just in, in those stories and, and hearing those those tales growing up, and then and then again, because my my uncle, his other brother Norman, was part of those black expatriates that stayed in uh, Paris after the war, and just I guess you know, as a kid, you don't really appreciate travel, not like we do as adults. I mean, that's always that's always an old adage, but I think it is true. And it's only later that you start to think about all that stuff. And again, though, going there and then hearing my uncle's stories about Paris and and, and sort of black expatriate life in Paris in the fifties is like. Wow, you know, and, it, and then it's, but of course it doesn't really it doesn't really impact me until like years later as an adult when you really start to think about it or now I start to read some articles or see some things about it, and then I start to really realize well that was pretty heavy duty stuff. So I guess all that richness just always just encouraged me. But I have to say this now: it's not as if it's not as if I got to write, sit down, and, and wrote a book in my twenties. It actually took like Chandler, not for Chandler was fired for drinking too much. Uh, I wasn't fired for drinking too much, but I was fired. So it took, <laughs> <laughs> so it took eventually being fired <laughs> in my thirties, and then having literally having some time in my ha- uh, my hands. And at that point, a buddy of mine, uh, Gar Haywood, had had published a book with uh, St. Martin's. St. Martin's then and even now still has that best first uh, private eye novel. Mm-hmm. And Gar had won that the previous year, so you know here I am in my thirties. We've already got the one kid now, uh, and like I said, man, it's like a, a, a little bit of a drift, and I'm not getting any younger. And it's like you know, if I'm going to do this, I better do this. Yeah. And uh, and my wife said, yeah, you should. You know, we got the time now. We don't quite need the money as much as we would need it. You know, in a couple more years, take the time. And 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 with that. And I actually took it was a ten week extension course. It was Bob Crace who, who we remained friends who was teaching this like a uh, course at UCLA because I was working for a union. We were uh, representing the, most of the groundskeepers of UCLA. And so that's how I found out about the, the course. And I took his course. And from that course, I uh, started a novel. I finished that novel. It was a monk novel. I've been monk novel. I didn't sell that novel, but it was a great discipline. It was a great learning mm-hmm. experience because I'd never run, I'd never written a novel before. So just the idea that every day you had to, finally figure out I got to write X amount of pages. Well, first of all, I got to have a plot. Then I got to write X amount of pages and then I got to get this bad boy done. Yeah. And that's such a big part of any creative process is, is, is the grunt work. Right. You're sitting down there, you know, facing the blank page, exactly. going out and right. walking with a camera or Dig whatever it. that may be. Right. And I think that's always the biggest challenge that I think 
a lot of people don't foresee is the daily commitment that's, <laughs> that's involved right. in it. being able to, you know, accrue those 10,000 hours that make you, that's it. you know, that's right. a, a, a professional. Right, so, right, right. You know, you didn't have the job. Right. You had the encouragement of your teachers and that's your right. wife. And, and my wife, that's right. Do it. Right. But nevertheless, that doesn't mean when you sit down at that typewriter or that computer <laughs> that, that you're going to put the words flows. on the page. <laughs> yeah, true. So you start thinking about, man, that, that lawn needs to get mowed. That's right. i got to right. get some wool for that door hinge. Exactly. So, it's right. So, that's it, baby. So how do you, what was it that, you know, got you to say, okay, I am going to, you know, finish this and not get right. caught up with, Oh, is it good enough? Oh, this is right. crap. Or let me right. rewrite this first chapter for the upteenth time. <laughs> right. And let you get to the point where you actually finish right. what you set out to do. Right. I think, you know, it's all, I, I think being a writer, of course, is on one hand, it's an incredibly humbling experience. And on the other hand, though, it is an ego experience, which is to say, in the end, man, I only write the book that I figure I'm going to read. <laughs> so, <you know. laughs> so I figured, well, hell, if I'm halfway entertained, then maybe, you know, maybe somebody else is. But, man, if I, because you're right, because, listen, <clears throat> as we know, man, if you get bored writing it, what does that say for the reader who's going to try to pick this, this, this piece of stuff up, this lead and weight up and try to plow through it? So hopefully... I'm entertaining myself. I'm I'm trying to uh, the things you learn as a writer. You try to, to do something different or try to. Uh, we were talking about this earlier. I mean, listen, there's only five or six or seven plots, and they're all the deadly. You know, there's the, the deadly sins, and there's there's a few other things, but that's pretty much it in terms of human behavior. And it's just all about how you come at it. What's the new approach to it, or what's the different uh, vantage point, or who is it that's telling us the story, and what's their what what is their stake in this story, or what is it that they want. They say they want, but they what they what do they really want? I guess writing that first book, and even then, I, I, I got a somewhere in the middle of it. I got, I got another job, but I was young then, so I, I was younger then, so I could write at night. Now I can't. Oh man, I, I can't. I can't even stay up past ten, let alone try to write uh, past ten. But in those days, I could I could I could work. I was working at a nonprofit, and because I think, and, I, and this actually this is actually part of the answer, and because of what I was writing. I mean, it's a mystery novel, but it has kind of social political elements. And because I worked in that world, those two things could meet. And so they weren't totally separate. So that uh, the work I was doing with the nonprofit or later on with the uh, multicultural collaborative established after the riots in 92 to better race relations. And I would have meetings, you know, downtown with some philanthropic foundation and then, and then a meeting at night with the gang truce cats in uh, in Nickerson Gardens because I could be in those two different arenas those two different worlds and draw on that experience and help to then put that in a fictional context on the page I think that really charged me it would probably have been a much more depleting experience if I had been writing something that was so divorced from what my workaday world was because you had to think so much harder about what you were putting on the page you make an interesting point about you liking the work that you're doing, right. you're, you're keeping engaged. And I think every creative art is really dependent on a person that you don't know, who you'll never meet, yes. experiencing your work for it to be really completed. Right. And in terms of photography, right. I go there, I make a photograph, and within an instant, yeah. I know whether I'm feeling okay. that, that right. photograph. So right. it's a fraction of a second. Right. With a novel, you're spending weeks and months right. So that feeling of going, you got it, can three days later go to, 
I don't know what the hell I'm doing. And for me, I think it's a much more treacherous yes. craft to sort of sustain because of those waning right. feelings up and down. So how do you contend with that when you're in the midst of writing it and thinking, I don't know what I'm doing, this is crap, it's great, I don't know. <laughs> right, right. I, well, I think, I think it's incremental, which is to say, if you can put in a good day's work, for me, if it's 1,000 or 1,500 words, if those uh, four, five, six, eight pages, if those eight pages are, are pretty decent, that's a good day's work. Because now you're constructing this bigger thing. I don't try to think too far ahead. If I think too far ahead, I'm going to psych myself out. There's, there's no way I'm not going to psych myself out. Uh, so my method is I write, I work from an outline. I write 50 or 60 pages, however long that takes. But, you know, assuming, but I, using my paces to try to at least write a thousand words a day. So that's four pages, four double space pages a day. I write 50 or 60 pages. I stop. I reread those pages. Then you know some of that stuff is crap. Some of that stuff is like, what was I thinking? Some of it's not bad. Mm -hmm. Fool with it. Uh, tighten it up. Re re do some rewriting. And go forward again, stop again, etc. So that when I get to the end, I read those last, of course, uh, allotment of pages. But I'm it. That's it. I'm yeah. done. If, if I have to rewrite it, I've rewritten... I guess I've rewritten two books fairly extensively, which is a little bit more uh, unusual for me. But man, if I if I have to rewrite it more than that, I'm it's either I don't have it or you know what I mean. It's just it's just too elusive. I cannot figure out what it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Interesting experience. I, I published two books last year. Yes, and it had always been a goal for me to get the book published. Right. And I was thinking a couple of weeks ago, and it's like I did it, and then. Now what? Right. And I started thinking about this whole idea of, you know, you, you always dream of something. Yes. Like getting published, getting an exhibit. Exactly. And then you get there and you've done it. Right. And then it's like, what's next? That's right. That's right. So That's right. I think in a That's lot right. of people who have not had the experience yeah. will look at all these people and go, oh, when I get my book published, right. something <laughs> That's right. all opens up. Right, right, right. right the angels right. will sing. Exactly, and exactly. Confetti will fall. That's and, right, baby. And then the That's reality right. is That's that, right. okay, i got to move on to, 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 the, the, next, next, to right. the next thing. Because I'm only as good as my last trick. Right. That's right. That's and, it. And I think that's, that's sort of... It must be an interesting process for you because you're, I'm sure your career has gone through yeah, cycles absolutely. and you get that book published and then you have to go on to, to, to the That's next right, thing. Right, right. So how does that reality end up shaping what you mm. choose to do, mm. to do yeah. next? Because yeah, people yeah. go, hey, I love that last book. Why don't you write another one just like, like that, right. <laughs> as opposed to you saying, I want to explore something else. That's and all right. of a sudden it becomes... Right. A much more different experience That's than to point. getting that first one out. There. That's right. That's a good point. That's a good point. I think because uh, I, I've kind of, uh, you know, uh, I guess knock on wood, right? Uh, in the last couple of years, I think I've kind of hit a groove, which is to say I've been writing books. I've been doing some comics, doing a little dabbling in Hollywood. And so in a certain way, that's a kind of a dream come true. Now, not that, not that it, that's generated a lot of big bucks, but it has kept my uh, mind active. The real answer is, it's writing short stories that really keeps me charged. Mm -hmm. Because in a short story, even though I write crime and mystery short stories, although there's a there's a fair element of of uh, Twilight Zone zoneness and uh, sci-fi sci that finds its way into some of my short stories, 
to me, the short story is a great way where you can, in fact, experiment, fool around a bit with uh, form, fool around a bit with points of view or shifting points of view or style and tone, where I probably I don't as much in a novel. Uh, and so I think that helps to keep me kind of um, sharp uh, and a little bit more attuned, I think, mm-hmm. and, and willing then to... To you know, in a novel, to, there's a certain kind of groove and a certain kind of pattern. Whereas with a short story, to me, I can break that pattern. I can break break out of that that not not that it's a rut, but break out of the sort of the, the normal path and fool around with it a little bit more. I think that's what helps to keep me kind of charged. That I get the ability, or I have the opportunity, I should say, not the ability. I have the opportunity to do some short stories usually throughout the year because I'm asked to do it for a particular anthology or something like that. And, uh, and so that always kind of, uh, I think, helps to keep me, like I said, in a, in a, uh, in a way in which that I'm not uh, falling into the usual. Inherent in that question, I was thinking about this, which is to say, you know, I've written series characters, but I haven't written, you know, Robert Parker wrote, God knows how many Spencer novels. I don't know, 50, I think 56. It was a lot. Some of those weren't that good. Some of them were really good. Uh, but some of those you could see where he just, you know, phoned it in. Because he's got a deadline. He's got to make that deadline. And he and he knows he's he's the old boxer. He knows the moves to do to sort of get him through. But they're but they're the old moves. They're 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 not the they're not the new they're not the new thing. Now, of course, that's somewhat the velvet trap, you know, as you as you said. Your fans also come to expect a certain kind of book. And particularly if it was a Spencer novel, you came to expect a certain kind of novel. And if you went too far afield from that, well, then, you know, then the readership was like, well, what the hell is this? This ain't a Spencer book, mm-hmm. you know. And yet, so you got to give them a little something of the familiar. But somehow or another, you as a writer, I think you've got to keep engaged. You've got to keep yourself uh, willing to kind of come to that page every damn day. And so there's got to be something there that makes you do it other than just the dough or the, or yeah. the deadline. Yeah. One of the things I like about uh, your work is that you use a Los Angeles that I'm familiar with. Okay, yeah. Like I said before, <laughs> you know, there's a certain Los Angeles that most people get to see in movies right. and in television. Right. And I think there's something about having the experience of being able to, in real life, negotiate the world that is... You know, largely yes. what most people are familiar with, right. and then the world that's dominated by you know Koreans or right. Hispanics right, right, or, or right. blacks, yeah. and that your work taps into that. Talk about hmm. choosing characters that are able to negotiate those worlds in a much different way than the characters that, like Chandler, right. were able to, who, right. who who may go into those communities right. but don't reveal it in a way that. That you're able to yeah. because it's tapping into your own life. Well, well, I get it. Well, exactly that. I think because it does reflect, to hopefully to some extent, my my life experiences or even experiences, of course, that I'm engaged in now. As we know, man. I mean, the L.A. The, certainly, the L.A. I grew up in, being being the older one here, the L.A. I grew up in, L.A. pretty much doesn't exist now. I went. I was back in my old neighborhood not too long ago, a couple months, several months ago. And well, I already knew this, of course, but just walking around it was was definitely reminded that you know it's pretty much all Latino now. It was, a, it was like a black working class area when I you know when I grew up there, and now you know it, it is in fact changed. Well, that's just the way those things go. And but it's just very interesting to sort of chronicle that, and so that even as somebody who I try to reflect some of those changes or some of that those those LAs in my work, I also know that I too have to now go out 
again and relearn. If I'm going to write about Long Beach and, and, and let's say Hmong young folks and, and Latino young folks sort of meeting or, or clashing or, or meeting uh, somewhere in, you know, where those borders cross, well, certainly that means I got to go hang out there. I at least got to talk to some folks who are in that mix because there's just no way that you as just a casual observer will understand that or get yeah. a sense of that, you know, or even now, man, I mean, as we know, I mean, Koreatown has sort of grown and not just a long Olympic, but, you know, different other enclaves and what have you. Well, what does that mean? Or what does it mean in, in Monterey Park that it's still Chinese, Chinese American, but there's another sort of push of other Asian groups. So if you're going to try to write about these areas or at least have these areas as a backdrop, you really do owe it to yourself to be you know, the amateur uh, archaeologist, the amateur anthropologist to go out there and kind of explore and find out, find out and get some sights and sounds and hang out in a coffee shop, hang out in a, in a restaurant or a diner and start to, you know, pick that up, start to absorb that, what that stuff is. Yeah. yeah. It's one of the reasons I love Los Angeles because some, some parts of Los Angeles have been completely wiped away right. in order to make, you know, way for new and quote unquote improved. Yes. And then there are other parts of Los Angeles that have transformed very slowly. Mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. They're almost glacial yes. place where only certain elements are changing. That's you just drive through That's South LA or, right. or, or right. in the Boyle Heights, right. and you can yes. see stuff from the 30s and the 40s right. Right. still there, still, right. and how it's been adapted and right. modified as right. different communities and generations have passed through there. And I think that's always one of the interesting things about this city that often goes unexplored in most of the the movies and yeah, the televisions yeah, and, and, yeah. and a good part of the literature that's that's right, out there. Right. I don't have a particular question, but that, <laughs> that's, just, that's just something that's always... No, but, no, but you're right. But it's, but it's also why then like when, you know, like a film like Crash or Collateral comes along and then people kind of, uh, or even, you know, episodes of The Shield, you know, where people sort of look at it in a different way because they, they see parts of L.A. that uh, for a lot of people, you know, I mean, for a lot of people, Southeast LA, you know, people Rivera and Bell and Bell, I mean, except Bell, except now, of course, because of the, the, the notoriety because mm -hmm. of the, the Times piece, but Bell, Bell Gardens and Commerce, Santa Fe Springs, I mean, you know, like I said, but people west of Los Angeles have absolutely no sense of, I mean, for that matter, a lot of people in the city don't have any sense of what that, what that area is, who, where is that, you know, what is that like? But yet, it's part of this massive Southland of ours. Yeah. So it's right. It is. It's very fascinating to me to think about exactly all these different enclaves, all these different areas that certainly even I don't necessarily have. I only have maybe a passing reference to a lot of them. But again, it gets us back to like if you're going to sort of think about a story in those areas, you got to then obviously think about then how do I go down there and how do I start to absorb and get a sense of. Yeah. You know, what, you know, whatever that place is, what, whether it's uh, Bell Gardens or, or writing about Paris or writing about any, any place else, you kind of owe it to yourself as the writer or as the chronicler of that, uh, even if it's in a short story to figure out, well, even my character's an outsider in this place. What is it that they would see? What is it they would observe? You know. Well, you got a new book coming out, Warlord of Willow Ridge. What, what number of book does this make for you? That's a good question, uh, Ibarnics. But you know who? But when you're having so much fun, who's counting? Uh, <laughs> I think it might be uh, might be eleven or twelve. But even before that book comes out, just as a little plug, I'm actually doing a signing of a collection of my short stories, uh, which which will be out end of this month. Funny enough, it's called Treacherous uh, Grifters, Ruffians, and Killers. 
February 16th? Yeah, Thursday, February 16th, I'm doing a signing at uh, S1. Okay. So tell me about that one. Uh, well, tr uh, that collects, uh, as we kind of circle back, uh, as we mentioned, I've done, uh, I've both edited and co-edited various anthologies over a period of time now. And, of course, the great thing about being the editor, uh, as you know, uh, Jervie and I did one called The Cocaine Chronicle several years ago. So the great thing about being the editor or the co-editor is that you get to put your own story in your own anthology, usually. <laughs> usually the publisher won't turn down your own story, uh, which would be a sad state of affairs if you, as, if you as the editor can't get a story in, in your own damn book. And then I've also been, I've been happy to have been asked by several editors or writer friends who are also editors uh, to contribute to various themed anthologies. So what Treacherous does, it collects... 20 of my stories that have appeared elsewhere. So, for instance, uh, Roger Crumbler considered his shave was in Los Angeles Noir, where a, uh, a man on his 50th birthday uh, stands at the, at the bathroom mirror in the morning taking his, taking his shave, um, but he's got more in his mind than just a slice of cake. And, uh, <laughs> and, and in fact, from Cocaine Chronicles, uh, I have my zombie story, uh, Disco Zombies. <laughs> it's all about coke-crazed coke zombies. So, <laughs> so I, anyway, all that to say is that it's a, it's a collection over, collecting stories over a period of time. You know, you mentioned in the beginning that one of the things that was a big source of inspiration in terms of storytelling were comic books. Yes. And you've, you know, written several so, yeah. comics yes. over the years. Was that a bigger deal for you when you got those comics yeah. as opposed to the novels? Since yeah, it, it was definitely a charge. I, um, you know, I don't regret that uh, I got a little start a little late in life uh, in terms of the prose writing. I think though, because even in my twenties, you know, I was I was such a comic book fiend. I wish I wish I had gotten broken into comics earlier. Just it, just in the sense of not not as a obviously not as an artist but as a, as a writer just in the sense of being able to apply more uh, more comics out there and 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 take it there's a little inkling of I might do a it's not even really it's really still more of a crime comic strip that I've got coming up a comic book that I've got coming up but but the idea of you know tackling you know Batman or Superman or or or, or Black Panther or Daredevil still still appeals to me even now uh, the the kid in me so that yeah it definitely was definitely there's definitely something to be said for man that I mean what a crazy bastard art form that you know uh, you have these words and pictures on on the page and as we know man uh, I mean it's a visual medium so of course it's 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 the artist who, who makes or breaks the comic book but just uh, I did this crime graphic novel for uh, DC uh, about a year ago, Vertigo, uh, called Cowboys. And the guy who, who drew that, Brian Hurd, is such a wonderful artist. And it's just, it's just so, I don't know, man, it's such a high when you get to see stuff you've just, you know, those cold words on paper. And then you get to see the artist translate that uh, because they themselves, of course, are storytellers. Mm. But to translate that into the visual uh, medium it still gives, it's a blast. It's just a, it's, even now, you know, it's still a blast. It's 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 a real collaboration. It's unlike what you're doing when you're right writing a story. That's right. You're really that's right. Dependent on that on that artist you exactly. know, to fulfill that absolutely. entire vision. Of you're the, absolutely that's absolutely absolutely correct. That's 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 for sure. Why it is all very interesting now, where you see this whole uh, you know in comics, it's always about the writer artist team and mm -hmm. you know who's on what book and and are, you know they kind of in sync or are they working together and you know what's the what's the thing they're making. And, uh, and but you know you can definitely see when when those two elements are 
are firing on all, all the cylinders, or certainly in the case of when sometimes it's the same yeah. person, you know, uh, who's the writer and the artist, which is just a great, just a great blessing. Uh, you can just de definitely see, though, you can definitely see when they're out of sync, and you can definitely see when they're in sync, when, they're, yeah. when it's just happening. Yeah, yeah. Well, the last question I always ask my guests is, I have them recommend another Another person whose work they, they love and admire. Very interesting. And uh, it could be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one wow. person be and why? <laughs> well, that's a very, that's a damn good question. That is a damn good question. Well, of course, the safe answer is, uh, I won't mention any of my friends because <laughs> I don't piss any of them off. Uh, so the safe answer, of course, is Elmore Leonard, who I've met a, couple, a time or two. Uh, I don't know him. I don't know him at all, really. I've just met him a time or two, but I'm still. I still dig his stuff. I still dig that. I don't know that great stoic style of his that he can still put it to the page at uh, 86. I think he's 86 now. So you know. So if nothing else, I, I suppose I'm going to have to tip my hat to Mr. Leonard for the simple fact of longevity, for the simple fact of being able to stay in the game and uh, to be on his game. Uh, for as long as he, as long as he has been, how about that? That's fantastic. <laughs> so, where can people find out more about all the different things that you're doing? Well, they can always visit the old website, uh, which is www.gdphillips.com. Uh, and as I said, uh, we'll be, uh, I'll be reading some and signing uh, treacherous at uh, S1 on uh, February 16th. All right, brother. Thank you very much. Thank you, brother. It's very good. It's lovely. The Candid Frame is supported by donations by people just like you. You can contribute to the show by visiting the website at thecandidframe.com where you'll find other resources about our guests as well as articles and links we think you'll find valuable. The show is edited by Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. Music is by Kevin McLeod. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame. <laughs>